Welcome to The Podium, the podcast about optimal health and high performance. I'm Dr. Kevin Sprouse. This discussion was created as a resource for the patients in my practice, where I have the pleasure of working with a very small group of professional athletes and high-performing individuals from around the world. So why Podium? Well, it represents the pinnacle. The winner of any race takes their place atop the podium, much as any expert in their field is often asked to share their wisdom and present from the podium. For me, it represents the intersection of athletic and cognitive performance. Our podcast dissects the principles of performance for my patients and then disseminates pertinent, actionable information with them in mind. If you happen to have found us and are not a patient, that's great. I hope you enjoy. But please understand, if you're not a current patient, any information contained herein is not meant for you to take as medical advice. You need to speak with your doctor before implementing any change in your health and fitness regimen. There is no doctor-patient relationship established via this podcast. For my patients, of course, that relationship already exists. Season three of The Podium is brought to you by Heads Up Health. Heads Up Health is the ultimate health dashboard. It allows you to integrate and correlate data from Aura Ring, Withings, Garmin, continuous glucose monitors, diet logging software like Chronometer, and blood work from LabCorp. This is a tool I use personally and one that we use with all of our patients at Podium. You'll hear more from the founder and CEO of Heads Up later in this episode. In the meantime, check them out at headsuphealth.com. In this episode of The Podium, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Sherry Ma. Sherry is a physician and scientist who focuses on sleep and performance. She's worked primarily in the athletic realm uh, and doing research and both as a consultant in, in sports in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball. Uh, she sits on the Nike Performance Council. She's worked with the Golden State Warriors, the San Francisco Giants, Toronto Blue Jays, the Steelers. Uh, I mean, her expertise is really sought out by all the top performers. She's been quoted in the New York Times. She's frequently on ESPN. Uh, she's been on NPR, CBS, NBC, Runner's World, National Geographic, The Wall Street Journal. You get the idea. She is one of the top experts in the world when it comes to sleep and performance. In this discussion, we dig into first and foremost, why sleep is important, how it impacts performance and how extending sleep can improve performance. And then we get into the specifics on how to really harness the power of sleep in your day-to-day -day routine uh, to improve your performance, whether that's athletic, cognitive, or both. I loved this conversation. I hope you all do as well. As you listen, come up with questions. Please save them. Patients, come back to me with those questions. Let's talk through it. Um, this is fascinating stuff, and I look forward to digging into it with all of you. So sit back, enjoy the conversation. So we are here today with Sherry Ma, MD, MS, physician scientist from the UCSF Human Performance Center, sleep expert, long list of accolades. I love that term physician scientist. Um, so many of us physicians focus too much on the clinical aspect and so many scientists, I think, forget the, the clinical aspect. So that's a, that's a beautiful interworking of the two. Um, Sherry is the Nike Performance Council's sleep expert. She has worked with the NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball, teams in those organizations. A true wealth of knowledge and now a resident in internal medicine. What, what happened there? <laughs> well, thanks for having me on, first of all, Kevin. No, it's good to have you. As someone who's gone through residency, I look back and look at that and I'm like, wow, with all those accolades to, um, to put yourself back into that academic uh, crockpot is, is impressive. Well, I think everyone has an interesting journey and uh, sometimes you just go about it in a different order or pathway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I came back for medicine as a little bit of later career decision. I first started at Stanford finding an interest in sleep and I had the unique opportunity to meet Dr. William Dement, who's considered the father of modern sleep medicine. He helped discover rapid eye movement sleep and really established the field of modern sleep medicine only 
50, 60 years ago, and everything has grown out of his work to what the field is today. And I had this unique opportunity to work with him as a young undergrad. And so I got fascinated with sleep very early on, started to look at how sleep particularly affected athletes at the collegiate level, having access to a wide spectrum of sports at Stanford, really being fascinated on how do you enhance sleep and recovery, uh, because most of the field, I think, has focused much more historically on the effects of sleep deprivation and restriction. But I think there's a second half of this untold story of what are the interventions, how can we enhance sleep and ultimately positively benefit daytime functioning performance. And so earlier on, I got to do more research uh, with Dr. Demen and, and a lot of the Stanford athletes start to look to the pro sports and recognize that there's a lot of individual athletes and organizations that really weren't leveraging even kind of fundamentals and basics of what healthy sleep uh, is and what can very much affect daytime performance functioning and health for their athletes and started to recognize that besides trying to understand some of those um, interesting questions in the research lab, but there's this large need to try to apply that. And I thought that was really fascinating and I was drawn to it. So then I stayed and did research and some of that applied work, joined on with Nike as a performance council um, and did some other interesting um, partnerships. Uh, for about a se another seven years before I decided to step back and go in this in. And really, I think it all sits under the same umbrella. But now, obviously, I have a little bit more of the clinical and medicine background to supplement some of the research and applied work. Yeah, which is quite honestly, I mean, you bring something to medicine that there, there's plenty of sleep doctors out there. Um, and most of them are fantastic. I don't mean to paint it that way. But one of the things I love in medicine is when people take the the research and the tenets of performance and bring it to medicine, not just looking at what makes us sick or what causes, you know, quote unquote conditions, but what can we learn to actually improve? And that's what your research has really been fairly unique in bringing to the space, I think. Right. I think so much of what we're trained as physicians is to look at the disease process and, and obviously interventions at that point. But I think so much of what I've been trained to focus on is how to shift that perspective of, of healthy sleep and being integrated also as preventative health, right, and preventative yeah. medicine and really trying to prevent injury, um, prevent um, some of the decrements that we know will come down the road if we continuously allow ourselves to be sleep deprived or have insufficient uh, recovery time. So a lot of my research, as you mentioned, has focused on how do we pay back accumulated sleep debt, right, when we chronically are getting insufficient sleep every single night. If, you know, the six hours is not uncommon for a lot of athletes or even working warriors and uh, many of our colleagues have experienced that on a regular basis. Um, but what are the interventions that we can do in the short term, even if it's several days to if you have an extended period of several weeks, how can we simulate pay that accumulated sleep debt back? What are the benefits, whether that's cognitively with reaction time um, or cognitive processing speed? How does that affect your physiology? And then ultimately, how does that affect physical performance for our athletes where everyone is looking for that 1%, but arguably sleep can potentially have a much larger impact on affecting multiple areas um, that's gonna ultimately play out and how an athlete will perform at the end of the day. So it's been a fun journey along the way, but um, one that is still so much more to come down the road. Which I think is always the case, right? It's never, you never quite finish in academia. It's always, you know, continuing the, the search and the journey, which is great. Um, with the research you've done looking primarily, is it primarily at athletes or is it fair to say solely in athletes as a kind of a test subject? It's been primarily in okay. athletes. We did have some earlier studies, obviously, in undergraduate students. And that's where I first was looking at extended sleep uh, interventions in undergrads who, as you probably very well remember, are often very sleep deprived and also not getting sufficient sleep uh, and have also looked at some other demographics, but largely it's in the elite athlete demographic, whether that's in the collegiate level or in the professional level. One of the things um, in, in medicine that I've tried to do is look at those studies in athletes and performance, cognitive performance, athletic performance, and see where that translates into those of us that are maybe not 
professional athletes, not even elite athletes, recreational athletes, um, even corporate athletes, so to speak. Do you think your research, which we'll get into some of the topics, but just broadly, do you think there is that ability to extrapolate that to the rest of us, so to speak? I do. I think that while I particularly studied the elite athlete, and that's largely because it's a demographic that one is motivated for performance, right? Performance outcomes. They're fascinated oftentimes with participating in research such as this. Um, they might have a more narrow window of variability uh, than perhaps the, the general public in several of the domains that we may be looking at. Um, but I do think largely that what we understand about uh, sleep and athletes can be extrapolated to some extent to the general population. So a lot of the sleep extension studies that I have done They've also, some colleagues have, rec, have replicated some of those in non-athlete populations or have done it previous to my work as well and have shown similar results, whether that's with reaction time or looking at mood levels, so fatigue levels. Um, and I think we all uh, are starting to recognize that healthy sleep is so fundamental to our health and wellness and our and our ability to be our best every day, that it's not just an area that an elite athlete needs to focus on. But we know for the general population, we all need adequate sleep duration. We need to, you know, have a focus on the quality of sleep and then also the timing of sleep. And those things are going to go across every demographic and from not just the adult, but down to our kids and um, across the whole lifespan. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and with athletes, it's nice from a, or from a research standpoint, you have metrics that are easy to follow. You, know, you can look at free throw percentage, you can look at um, putts made, you can look at you know any number of things that that the sports community follows really closely and has data for. They have your control data from you know before you start the trial almost. Uh, with the rest of us, like I don't know how fast I type and if you if you made me sleep better, I don't know that I would type faster. Um, so it, it's also a, athletics and sports makes for a very nice, kind of controlled environment, I think, measured environment to, to test some of these things. It definitely does. I think that's where we see um, some interesting findings too, even if it's, you know, an end of one. So, you know, Andre Iguodala is someone who openly talks about his sleep and how we adjusted his habits and approach. And obviously he was someone who was, you know, doing very well as an all-star NBA player for many years. But the difference of him going from under seven to eight hours, um, you know, in his statistics that was recorded during the time that we worked with him increased his free throw percentage by 8.9%, wow. which was replicated in what I did with the Stanford men's basketball or his points per minute went up, I believe it was 29%, which are huge gains, right? Yeah. For someone who's already at the top of the, of, you know, their, their lead too. So, you know, you can quantify and obviously there's a lot that goes into it and there's many other factors as well. But I think that it is, um, you know, one area that often gets frequently overlooked and sacrificed, but can make such a huge difference for, for all athletes, whether you're, you know, a, a high school athlete to a professional athlete, whether you're a rookie or you've been in the league for multiple years. Uh, sometimes there's different needs depending on a season or depending on where you are. Um, but largely it's one thing that, you know, we can't ignore on one air, one part of your season and then start to pay attention to it when it gets to the regular season and expect that to be putting yourself in the best position. Right. We wouldn't do that with diet or, you know, other things that are widely recognized as being, uh, you know, major, uh, foundations of performance. Um, and I think that story is a great one that, that will probably provide a caveat to the rest of us who think, you know, I'm only sleeping six, six and a half hours. Um, when I was in your position in, in residency, four hours was my norm midnight to four. If I wasn't doing a night shift midnight to four. Um, and you know, it was good enough. I was getting by, you know, I was, I was fine. I was chief resident. Like surely I'm doing fine. Um, but then you take somebody who is obviously at a very high point in their, their career, in their game, all-star, everything else. And you add that sleep and see how much better they can be. Like none of us want to leave that on the table in whatever we do. And so I think looking at those examples and, and not just the examples, but the, cause those are anecdotal, they're interesting. 
they probably have something to them, but you've done the research to, to back it up. Um, tell us about that Stanford free throw percentage study. I think that's fascinating. Sure. So this was one of my earlier studies where I was first fascinated with uh, whether or not there would be both cognitive changes in terms of reaction time, but then also physical manifestations of performance improvement in the men's basketball team at Stanford University. And so I did this over a couple of seasons, obviously, because there is a only small roster each year for the basketball team. And, and the basic idea was, you know, if we paid back accumulated sleep debt, over multiple weeks because the hypothesis was that you can't pay back accumulated sleep debt probably in one night or one weekend of quality rest, that it probably takes multiple days, possible weeks. And um, some will say do... you never can. I mean, you'll hear that frequently that you, know, you can't do it. Right. So there's probably a difference between the acute accumulated sleep debt and being able to pay that back and then how chronic can you pay back and how many years, um, whether that's possible or not exactly. But at least we wanted to say in these undergraduate students, student athletes who probably had a sizable accumulated sleep debt, if we extended their sleep, so they're sleeping more than they typically would, I challenged them up to 10 hours of sleep for five to seven weeks. And as we did that process, we monitored their reaction time. We looked at um, their fatigue levels, their energy levels. And then on the physical performance measures, I looked at stats that obviously they'd be very used to. So we did free throw shooting, three-point shooting, and then we did uh, a sprinting drill. And the bottom line was over those five to seven weeks, we did demonstrate that there was a significant improvement in terms of their reaction time, um, their sprint time decreased, and then their free throw and their three-point shots increased 9% from their own baseline. Granted, no, we, we didn't have a control group during this time because of the limitations of the roster, but at least in comparison to their own statistics, and obviously they're not novices at free throws and three-point shots right. to, to be at the level where they were. Um, that, and you, you know, can't again, blind, blind a control group and, and you say, cannot, you yes, think exactly. you're sleeping, but you're not. <laughs> And so, and so we saw that there was a 9% improvement, which is huge for these athletes, right? Yeah. Again, they're Massive. looking for that 1% gain. And so, um, you know, many of them were surprised themselves that they thought that they were, as you mentioned, doing fine on their six or seven hours of sleep. And it's not that we can't get by and we sure. can't do okay. We have all done that at a point. But I think what was really highlighted to a lot of these athletes, or as I mentioned to Andre later, is that there's this additional capacity that seemingly we were able to tap into that they just were not leveraging. Or if you want to look at it the reverse, it was just that they were performing at a suboptimal level previously because they were chronically um, sleep restricted. Yeah. And so once you open up that capacity, then they're actually able to reach more of their higher potential, which is for many of these athletes, a place that maybe they had very rarely experienced because they've been so tired and worn down over obviously accumulated time. Or as you said, you challenge them to get up to 10 hours of sleep. It's not easy to sleep 10 hours in a night. And I'd guess that most of them did. What was the average uh, amount of sleep they were getting? Do you, I'd have to go back spot. and look at the ex exact numbers, <laughs> yeah. but I think that they were getting, so we looked at subjectively, that was the challenge just to get to 10 hours of sleep each night. And the goal was okay. really consolidated sleep during the nighttime period, not necessarily to uh, add in daytime naps because obviously the type of sleep can be quite different. Mm -hmm. But then we also looked at objectively how much they were getting. So I think um, if I recall, they were objectively getting at least about eight and a half hours objectively because there will always be oftentimes a difference and it's usually less than subjectively what you think yeah but largely the the difference is that there was a substantial increase on average every night on which they were getting additional hours of sleep from the baseline five to seven weeks and as they were substantially reducing down that sleep debt is when we continued to see performance improvement and since that you've you've kind of extrapolated that into looking at the NBA, the NHL, time shifts. And what I mean by time shifts is you take a West Coast team who goes to play in New York and and, and then look at that versus an East Coast team who goes to play in LA um, and see how some of this plays out because that scenario, that travel scenario gives one team an acute disadvantage or advantage depending on which way they're going. Um, what have you seen in that? Yeah, so when we look at the difference of the body clock, 
specifically looking at the East Coast versus West Coast matchups and night games. Because there's a three-hour difference in that body clock where regardless of which coast the teams are playing on, the West Coast team is going to always be playing on an earlier body clock, mm. right? Whether it's a night game West Coast or whether it's a night game on the East Coast. And so that three-hour difference in their body clock, and when you look at this over span of there's the original study of the Monday night football study was over 25 seasons. And then I, I am um, the original author worked to expand that to 40 seasons up to 2011 season, I believe. Wow. Uh, and then we see what the difference is in the first 25 seasons, you beat the Las Vegas point spread about 68% of the time you simply bet on the West coast team. Wow. And so it won't play out in every game, of course, but yeah. the idea is that that body clock difference really can potentially impact game outcomes, particularly in these scenarios where the body clock is three hours shifted. And the reason is because in that late afternoon to early evening is when performance is enhanced. That's when world records are broken. That's when athletes are performing at their best. And then when you expand this now over to 40 seasons, we also demonstrated that you're twofold more likely to beat the point spread again, if you just simply bet on the West Coast team. Now, there's obviously a lot of factors that go into this, oh, but sure. I think it's just one illustration that obviously there's other um, travel and uh, body clock factors that can affect game outcomes. And this is sort of the one of the motivations that led to the ESPN schedule alert project where said, let's look at the NBA. And for the last three seasons, I partnered with ESPN to look at the season and predict when would be the highest risk games for teams that would be at risk of losing, not because of who they're playing as the opponent or the strength of team, but strictly based on the travel schedule, the density of games, what time zones they were going to or coming from. And predicting those from the beginning of the season and allowing readers and viewers to follow along and see how well we could predict these games. And so it was a very fun exercise. And, you know, in the end, we were, um, I believe, anywhere in the 78 to 86 percent accuracy on the highest risk games, just simply win versus loss. And again, there's a lot of other factors that go into that. And of course, strength of team makes a difference. But we eliminated that factor in the spirit of the project, really just to illustrate that, hey, there are these other things um, that and factors that should be considered about in recovery and how frequently these athletes have to travel and what direction they have to go that likely can play a factor into what will happen in terms of the game outcomes. Yeah. So while maybe an imperfect way to fully predict what's going to happen in a game, it shows how powerful sleep and recovery is as just a standalone feature of these athletes' competitive performance, which, I mean, I think is amazingly fascinating. Have any of the teams or leagues looked to harness that either from a team standpoint to to improve their odds or from a league standpoint to kind of flatten those odds a bit? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I work with some teams that clearly are the ones that are going to be interested in trying to figure out better ways to travel. When should they be taking flights? How should they try to optimize their, their body clock when they're East Coast versus when they're on the West Coast. And so I think there definitely has been progress in the last 10 years from individual organizations. Um, and then also, I think from the leagues, I think the NBA in particular has been a little bit more vocal in, in sharing how they've adjusted some of the scheduling to try and improve uh, their scheduling, because I think they're, they recognize that these factors um, can impact game outcomes and the health and the performance of their players. And they have gradually over the last couple of seasons improved some of the scheduling. So, for example, decreasing the number of back to back games and looking at the density of games has been one thing they've been um They've been they've been shared of tried to reduce over those seasons. Um, you know, I think some of the other leagues are trying to take a look at how those schedules are are um, being put together. But there's a lot of factors that go into obviously making those schedules. I think one come up in the NFL is now that they're playing games in London. That's mm -hmm. become a, a larger issue for some of the teams that have to travel. Um, and so teams are starting to start to figure out, you know, what is the best way to handle the flights? When should they go out? And um, but I think we have a ways to go as well. 
Yeah. Well, and that's that international travel is something that I work with um, or, or work around with cyclists and triathletes who, you know, maybe you've got a Belgian flying to Australia for an early, early year cycling race. And it's not as time crunched because you've got, you have time to sort out, like you can get there two weeks, three weeks early. Um, but then there's a cost to that too. So we're often trying to figure out the same thing on, on a bit of a different scale. Um, but it, I mean, it certainly has an impact. And then all the things around travel, hydration, meal timing, all those things that impact circadian rhythms as you, as you travel and shift that rhythm, we're starting to see how each of these is a piece of the puzzle that impacts performance. And to your point, it's not sufficient for performance, but if you, if you don't have it lined up correctly, you are, you're leaving some out that you're not performing as well as you could. And nobody wants to do that in a competitive scenario. Exactly. I think you hit it perfectly where, you know, I think sleep and circadian rhythms in the body and how you travel is relatively newer to the sports performance world than say, obviously the training, the strength and conditioning, nutrition, those have been better established. And so we're sort of the new ones to the table, but I think people who uh, are really keen on leveraging the, the research and doing things differently are the ones that are obviously the athletes that take most advantage are in getting the benefit of it. Um, I have seen a lot of athletes at the top of their leagues. Some of them just don't even like to talk about their sleep because they recognize it's such a big competitive advantage (laughs) compared to what they know that their other counterparts are doing or not doing for that matter. And so I think it's an interesting evolution, even within the last couple of years, uh, to see that change of some of the younger athletes coming up and recognizing that they already have some awareness or they have some practices that are built in that I would say I hadn't seen five years ago at the top level. So I think, you know, we're moving in the right direction, but, uh, still at its infancy. Yeah. I I had an athlete tell me probably 10 years ago now, um, which means he was probably a little bit forward thinking in his thought process, but he said, part of the reason he's paid every year, part of what he's paid to do is to sleep 10 hours a night. And that that was really insightful. I kind of looked at him and said, Oh yeah, you know, you got to perform, but yeah, you got to recover. Um, exactly. Their their job is not done at the end of the day when they no. leave the building, right? I think these athletes recognize that that continues on through the night and they need that recovery to be prepared to come back yeah. and train. And like you mentioned, so many of these different areas are intertwined, right? There's, I would say... It, you know, nutrition and sleep is still at its infancy of a lot of that research. And I think we recognize that there's um, interconnections and how you should time your your meals and what you should be eating can very much also affect the quality of your rest and that type of recovery. Or as you're mentioning, there's a trade-off of travel fatigue. So it's not just purely the circadian disruption when you cross time zones, but there's this additional cost of travel and being in a new environment and not having your regular routines um, or the high hydration and altitude and a lot of these factors that we all have to consider when you're on the road, because it's not the same as when you're in your controlled home environment. So let's look at those, some of those issues, both for athletes and non-athletes. If we, I mean, you've done a lot of the work in establishing this sleep science and the importance of sleep and how it can really move the needle for performance. Um, The implementation of that, I think, is still what people have a lot of questions about, and granted, there are just questions in the science. Like, I don't, I don't want to sit here and say, we're going to tell you all the answers to how this works. Um, but I think there's one of the things that has come along with the societal increase in recognition of the importance of sleep is questions around, okay, I get it. Now, how do I do it? Right. Um, and so one of the things as physicians, we try to lay out to patients is this idea of sleep hygiene and, and the various components of sleep hygiene. Um, when you're talking to an athlete and you've convinced them that, okay, this is something worth paying attention to, worth investing in, what are those next steps? I think it depends on where the athlete obviously starts from and their their journey of self-discovery of what healthy sleep means for their training, for their performance. Because there's a fair number of athletes, I think, that come to me and have done 
you know, their own research and they've started um, implementing wind down routines and they look at their hydration and they're mindful of their alcohol and caffeine. They've done their research about the sleep environment. And so we start at a different place and trying to optimize uh, some additional factors in their approach versus still say there's a lot of athletes who have never looked at sleep before they jump into bed and they sleep whenever it happens mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they wake up and then they don't know during the day and there really isn't a structure around that um, as you sleep hygiene is what we term in the medical field as those practices that will lead to hopefully uh a sufficient duration, but also good quality of rest on a regular basis. And I'm sure some of those practices are things that you've heard before, but um, the reality is it is hard sometimes for all of us to execute all of these different factors each and every day. So I think it's always a work in process. So for myself included, right? Some days you're going to have a poor night of sleep. And I think that's one thing to recognize and it's okay. We all are gonna have a bad night's sleep here or there. It might be the night before an important race, but what I try to remind my athletes is what's more important is how have you slept the week before? How have you approached your sleep in the month leading up to this important event or competition? That's really also gonna be what's more critical. And there is evidence to, to support that, that if you've had the additional rest and recovery time, if you come into a, um, a scenario where you're gonna be particularly sleep restricted or deprived, um, then you're you're definitely going to see less of a performance impairment. So that gives, I think, some um, comfort to, to athletes knowing that obviously it's also about what you've done long term, not just kind of that night before a competition. Yeah, I've actually seen numerous scenarios where an athlete is tapering for an event. So maybe not like an NBA series or you know, something where they're playing game after game, but you know, tapered for a one day race, the Olympics say, and the morning of the race, they come to me and they slept terribly. They're worried about it. They couldn't go to sleep all night. They're almost a little twitchy. And I actually take that as a good thing because usually they have, you know, assuming, like you said, that they have ticked all those boxes leading up to that. If they've tapered appropriately and they've, they've been sleeping and their diet's good. There's almost this like just the body's just ready to go and it doesn't want to sleep. And, and I've seen so many patients um, that I've worked with have an amazing day on one night of horrendous sleep. Uh, now, if it had been one week or one month, that's not going to happen. But I, I think your point of not catastrophizing um, a night here and there is really important. And have you seen with, with the added emphasis on sleep, the pendulum swinging too far that way in any cases? I have with select athletes, but I think that's uh, ones that potentially have been very focused on, for example, objective monitoring. So Mm -hmm. their last 10 years has been a boom of wearable devices, consumer tech, and largely I I do actually really like some of the sleep technologies. I think it gives additional insight to um, even just understanding when you have an approximate bedtime, wake time, and how much those are shifting throughout the day or weeks. I think that can be quite helpful. Obviously, there's a wide spectrum of accuracy and and, um, validity to some of these products, but I think it does at least help engage in that conversation and making athletes more aware of how they're sleeping during the night. So some of the athletes that have been very focused on what those numbers are and some of those um, outputs in the morning have been, have come to me concerned about, you know, Sherry, I only got five hours of sleep at night and it says that my ex recovery score is, is poor. You know, I'm, they're concerned about how they're going to perform. Um, so I have seen it swing to that side. And then that's where I, again, try to emphasize that we're not going to always have the perfect night of sleep, but when those times occur, what are the things that we can do and pull out of our tool belt to try and minimize that effect, say the subsequent night. Um, And again, reassuring that it's more about, well, let's take a look at how your sleep had been that prior week or the prior two weeks and trying to make sure that that's really more the focus so that we can move forward and try to um, make sure that they're, you know, minimizing any night of poor rest or recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And the, the wearables, um, I, I, in my practice, most, if not all of my patients wear something and there's numerous devices that they wear. Um, 
what I like is not watching a single day at a time, but looking for trends over a week or two weeks and even more so looking at an intervention um, and then seeing if it changes things measurably, like not, not small changes, but we do, do we move them from one bucket to another? Right. And then we can say, okay, that looks like it's having an effect one way or the other, or is it just mild, you know, maybe no significant change. Um, and so weighting these things appropriately, I think is really important. And that goes toward anything we've used in sports, heart rate monitors, uh, uh, power meters and cycling, like they all have to have their context to them. Um, and you can, I've definitely taken heart rate monitors off of patients. I've taken power meters and cycle computers off their bike and just said, don't worry about it. Just go ride for a while. And then some, we put it on like, watch this. You need to watch what's happening. So it's very individual, I think. I definitely agree. I think it helps um, for some athletes at least open up that process of discovery. For those that may have never looked at sleep before, I think it's one way to engage in that question and have them be able to have some of that feedback on a regular basis. But like you said, looking at the bigger trends than it is necessarily about the specific night to night changes, since obviously there can be a number of factors that go into why uh, you might have particular outcomes from one night to the next. Yeah. So some of the main things that we look at with regard to sleep hygiene, when we talk about that with patients, is the regularity of schedule, sleep and wake times, um, the temperature in the room, uh, which cooler is typically better. I think 64-ish degrees Fahrenheit. Is that 64, 68? 60 to 67 has been demonstrated okay. to be uh, preferable for helping individuals fall asleep faster and then also having consolidated sleep at nighttime. But for many, that's very cold. A lot of yeah. athletes do actually like those temperatures. But if you're not used to that, I say, okay, start at you know your typical 70 degrees and then knock it down a degree or two a couple of days to find what's right and also what's right for you and if you have a bed partner since you don't want to uh, make them a popsicle either <laughs> right. way. Right. Um, you know, the darkness in the room and along with that exposure to any light sources as you go to bed, devices, things like that, which I find, especially with my athletes is a recurring problem. Um, especially like the tour de France is going on right now. I've got athletes there who don't see their families for four weeks or the NBA bubble. Right. And so oftentimes at night, they'll want to watch a movie and FaceTime with the family. Um, I can't fault them for that, but I know it's probably negatively impacting their sleep. Uh, do you, I, I've seen the science or some of the research around blue light blocking, uh, glasses. Do you think that's a, a reasonable recommendation for someone in that scenario? I do. I think if, you know, the, the most ideal is obviously to avoid the technology the hour yeah. before bed, right? Um, because the, the the blue frequencies of light will affect the part of your brain that controls your sleep and your wake and can prevent your melatonin release. So, of course, it physiologically is um, going to be making it more challenging for you to sleep when you actually desire to sleep at, at night. Um, and then also can potentially affect some of the staging of sleep and also sometimes can make you more groggy uh, in the morning time. The ideal is just to shift that time. So I'm trying not to take, you know, recommending taking time away of spending time reconnecting with family or obviously um, being on chats that are socially and psychologically important for our athletes, but trying to just shift that time. So just being creative with more time management, can we shift that to maybe after dinner and then reserve time in the hour before bed to wind down ox and transition from the day? Um, blue blocking glasses can be one way to at least minimize the exposure. It won't eliminate out entirely, right. but I think it's better than not. Um, on Depending on what phones, the, the iPhone has a night shift mode. I do recommend and putting it on the more warm setting versus the less warm setting. There was a study that demonstrated that that did impact the levels of melatonin release. Whether that's clinically significant was questionable, but at least it's at least putting it um, in the warmest setting possible. Or you can obviously uh, download some programs on the laptops that can minimize some of the blue light exposure. Yeah. Are um, those things active, like doing that and then wearing the glasses? Um or it does it is there a certain point at which you just can't block the blue light anymore or, or or decrease it from a screen your question was whether or not wearing blue blocking glasses and having yeah, the are programs they, is are they additive that's a good question 
I don't have, I don't okay. think there's been any research that has done both together. Yeah. Just curious. Cause I'll often recommend the two and with that caveat that I, I don't actually know that, that that's better than just doing one, but it seems like it might be, and there's no downside. I'm, I think I'm aligned with you. I would have an athlete if you're going to expose yourself to do both as yeah. well, to okay. put it the night shift on and also use blue blocking glasses. Um, you know, you, you make a good point of the environment as well. I tell my athletes, make your environment like a cave, really dark, mm-hmm. quiet, cool, and comfortable. So like blackout shades and curtains are probably one of the best investments you can make because it really blocks out a lot of light. A lot of athletes don't realize that the sunlight in the morning can wake you up and you can have more tossing and turning. You may not recall those events, but if you look at it objectively, then you can see those Options and particularly if their athletes are traveling, you may not have as a controlled environment. So some athletes actually travel with black blackout shades. Mm-hmm. We talked about the temperature being 60 to 67 degrees. Um, one thing I always ask athletes about is also when they shower, because um, if you shower before bed, that can increase your core temperature and is the opposite effect of what you want to happen when you fall asleep was the decrease in your core temperature. So if you're making sure that you at least are backing up your shower by an hour and a half before you're going to bed, that can potentially augment um, helping your sleep onset. And then there's been small studies to show that that can decrease the time to fall asleep and also enhance deep sleep. So one strategy for those that either struggle with sleep or are um, also um, are aware that the temperature regulation is something that affects their quality of rest. Could you do a and cold shower instead of a warm one? The hot showers and the hot passive heating has been studied uh, more commonly than yeah. the cold. Okay. And so they've been really the immersion into usually hot baths or into um, full body immersions is what's been studied. Um, but conceptually, potentially that could have an effect. I just don't know that the literature is of the same. What wasn't there a thing with the, some of the NBA guys who are bathing in red wine? I have not heard about this. This, this may be urban myth, but um, they could study that too. That's usually room temperature, so it's probably fine. The alcohol is a whole nother story. You know, that can help you fall asleep, which a lot of athletes will tell me, you know, it helps me fall asleep, Sherry. I'm like, I bet it does. But what they don't realize is it very much can also fragment their sleep in the early morning hours. And so you wake up a lot more. You can wake up a lot more groggy. Uh, So definitely not ideal if you're trying to maximize how consolidated your sleep is at nighttime. Yeah, the, the alcohol, I think, I think my patients who do wear some sort of sleep tracking device, that's one of the things that impacts them or that kind of grabs their attention most is to see how even just a couple of drinks, you know, not going out and having a big party or you know, just overdoing it, but a couple of drinks before bed can just tank the quality of their sleep. And to your point about accuracy, it's hard to say looking at these devices, how much is that, but you can definitely see the trend and that it's, it's gone off the rails a bit with very little alcohol intake and everybody's individual. But I think seeing that you can hear it all day, but when you see it, it's, it's pretty impactful. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's more about just be making smart decisions of when you are going to have a couple of drinks, obviously trying to minimize that before a specific, you know, competition or a match uh, and just trying to choose that on days that you may have some additional days leading up into when you need to be training for your big event. Yeah. But, but yeah, definitely alcohol is one thing. I think that's a easy culprit that most people are not aware of and actually tend to use that to try and help, help fall asleep more quickly. Yeah. And the goal is not to be a monk. Like you said, you pick, know what you're giving up, like the, the knowledge that this stuff, that alcohol will impact your sleep, for instance, or that, you know, watching a movie before bed or whatever, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you at least have the knowledge of what the trade-off is when you, when you make that decision. And that's, I think that's fine. Um, you know, you, everyone can make the decisions they want. If you're going to the, the finals or a, a, or a big race or whatever, hopefully you'll make a better decision. If you're on vacation and you want to watch a movie and have a couple drinks, like, I think that's perfectly appropriate. So it's, for me, it's more about knowledge, not trying to make it so that you have the perfect, uh, the perfect routine every night. Exactly. Or I, I also bring up caffeine in that conversation because mm. that comes up as a frequent topic where 
you know, athletes have said, you know, Sherry, caffeine is helps me um, as a performance enhancer, which it does, right? So we just have to be smart in how we balance these factors because obviously caffeine is also a stimulant that's going to prevent you from sleeping depending on when you're consuming caffeine and sensitivities to caffeine. Um, but I had, you know, for example, I had a closing pitch who used caffeine and and used that as performance enhancement strategically and I think did appropriately. Yeah. Uh, but we had to balance that because he's also a closing pitcher. So how do we balance that with then needing him to wind down and actually still get recovery at nighttime? So it's not that you need to totally eliminate um, all of these things uh, to optimize your sleep, but I think it's just making those wise decisions and being strategic of how you do that so that it's working in your favor to maximize your daytime performance, but also allow you to get that recovery at nighttime. Yeah. When I first came to endurance sports medicine, um, this is something that caught me off guard as a, as a problem is, you know, at the Tour de France say it's pretty typical for somebody to take a gel with caffeine, you know, a, like a, a goo or something like that. That's got caffeine in it in the last hour for that reason, because they need, they need the carbohydrate, they need the sugar. Um, and the, the caffeine 70 milligrams, hundred milligrams is going to help them with that final push. But then they finish the race at five, five thirty, get back to the hotel. It's time for bed. And they're still just kind of wired and jittery. Um, and the traditional fix for that had been pharmaceutical sleeping meds. You know, you, you, and it wasn't, I don't want to make it sound nefarious. It, it wasn't, but the, the idea was, you know, they got caffeine to, to pump them up and improve the performance. And then we'd knock them down with the, the, the benzos or whatever at night and just, you know, repeat the next day. Um, and Long story short, we don't do that anymore. Um, one of the things that has helped kind of move that to a healthier way of addressing it is the recognition that those sleep medications really fragment sleep as well. Is that something that you've seen, um, you know, in, in the research to, to be the case? Right. So if you supplement sleep with a pharmacological aid, it is not going to be the same in terms of the quality and the duration of different stages of sleep than if you did not have a pharmacological aid on board. Um, so bottom line is that, you know, in the majority of scenarios, we try to obviously just build a better structure in terms of lifestyle and approaches to their sleep for an athlete, because that is also still what is going has been shown to affect and improve sleep long term as you obviously might expect. Um, but there are scenarios where sleep aids can be potentially beneficial and used yes, as needed to in certain scenarios, right? Or in particular with travel, if going in the right direction, melatonin potentially can be used to help shift that body clock and be helpful to decrease sleep onset in those particular scenarios. So it's not that there's no scenario in which we shouldn't be using pharmacological aids. You just have to be wise in particular um, on when they're most advantageous. What I do see is sometimes athletes taking sleep aids or wanting sleep aids in, in incorrect scenarios. Um, and I know it's always tough because athletes are traveling very frequently and, and know they need the recovery. And so are really trying to reach for things that can aid them in those situations. Um, to be smart and trying to be strategic of when we use those aids because they very much can also have the side effects, as you know, of making um, athletes drowsy, right? So mm -hmm. melatonin, even as, as what many people will view as a benign supplement, you know, it is something that can make you much more drowsy. So if you're an athlete that has to wake up and perform during the daytime, or for example, let's just take my, you know, MLB players who have an early, like have a night game, they're trying to sleep and they have to wake up for uh, a day game, they can be drowsy when they wake up if they um, have not either used melatonin before or that that's just a side effect that we know that can affect um, uh, how they feel in the morning time. And so it's not to say that they um, don't have any negative consequences too of taking right. any of these sleep aids. So things like Ambien, obviously you've seen some of these reports too of some of the behaviors that have been documented at nighttime, mm -hmm. um, how that can very much um, also affect uh, athletes' ability to stay asleep. So it helps fall asleep, but doesn't help you stay asleep. Yeah. And so these are just other considerations and, and when we should be, you know, trying to use these strategically. But I think over in the big picture, a lot of athletes over the last, I would say five years have tended 
more away from pharmacological aids than I saw probably earlier on. Um, I think that's just a shift in terms of athlete awareness and education and knowledge about the importance of healthy sleep and recovery and, and many of them wanting to do it kind of the the structured way and trying to optimize some of those approaches, looking at not just the duration, but the quality and then the timing, because they recognize now, I think that these are all factors, not just purely how many hours, um, even though I think that's one of the hardest ones that athletes still struggle with is getting an hours of rest. Yeah. Um, so drawing to an end, I want to, I want to be really cognizant of your time. Um, you're super busy and I appreciate you coming on, but I want to run one scenario past you. Um, it is not a specific patient of mine, but it's almost every patient of mine. Um, and just curious how, like one insight you would give this person. So, uh, somebody comes to you there, um, maybe 30, 35 years old, very high performing in either sports, uh, as a professional or recreational person, but somebody who tries to fit a lot in. They've got a family, they've got maybe some outside pursuits uh, uh, from a business standpoint. And they say, look, I, there's not enough time for me to get eight hours of sleep. Like that's just, that is a non-starter. I get up at four so I can get my workout started at 4.30. We get on with the day and I practice and this and this and this. How do you go about, um, one, kind of talking to that person about the importance and two, once that person comes around and says, okay, fine. I'm willing to give a little bit and try to optimize a few things. Where do you, where would you kind of suggest starting with that person who hasn't really addressed sleep hygiene? It's the person who plops in bed at the end of the day because they're legitimately exhausted and, you know, they're, they're falling into bed at 1130 or 12, waking up at, you know, 430 and hammering it out again. Just curious. That is a very common snare. <laughs> it is. Um, where would I start? I, I think that's often think, my response too. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think you have to start foundationally of understanding, you know, why, why is sleep important, right? Because most of us have gone by with five or six hours probably for much of our adulthood. And it's not that you can't, but I think it's highlighting you know, not only what are the decrements when we're getting insufficient sleep, um, how is that affecting us, but then, you know, how much more can we tap into for us to really be at our best, right? So from the sleep deprivation standpoint, right? So you're going to have, um, if you're constantly getting insufficient sleep, so even one night of sleep deprivation is equivalent to being legally intoxicated in terms of your reaction time, right? I think that that hits home for a lot of individuals that you wouldn't want to be at an impairment of being legally intoxicated. But if you're getting insufficient sleep, that is putting you still at that same impairment level. Um, obviously that can lead to additional cognitive errors and worsening of attention and judgment. Um, from an immune function standpoint, right? You're four times more likely to catch the common cold if you're getting six or less hours of sleep versus if you're getting seven or more hours of sleep. And that's huge, right? Especially in this era that we are right now. Yeah. Um, we, we want healthy and strong immune systems. And so even putting yourself in the best position to be able to fight infections and being healthy as especially we're going to be going into flu season now too as well. And, um, and I just that, learned from a colleague of mine that vac the studies around vaccines show that the vaccines are more um, effective when someone is well slept going into the administration of that vaccine, which stands to reason, but that also kind of hit home with me. Yes, there have been some studies. It's in particular vaccinations okay. uh, that that's been shown. But yes, in those, they have demonstrated that the individuals who were better rested and had more sufficient sleep in the days leading up to the vaccination had a stronger and more robust response to mm. it subsequently. So whether or not, obviously, that is applicable to other types of vaccination sure. is still to be determined. But still, I think, you know, an important message that, you know, we can have an impact on how um, how our immune function is 
is going to be as healthy as possible. And sleep is an important part of that foundation. Um, and then, you know, if we go into not just the physiology of how that affects our inflammation levels, inflammatory markers are higher. If you're yo-yoing between insufficient sleep and getting catch-up sleep on the weekends, uh, it affects our appetite with ghrelin and leptin levels. And so maybe some of these athletes aren't meeting their weight goals or their mm -hmm. nutrition goals. And that sleep is something that they need to factor in and think about because it very much can help them or hurt them in trying to get to those goals. So these are some of the areas that I would probably address with them. Um, and then on top of that, I think what for a lot of is more motivating is like, how can you be at your best? Right. Yeah. And, and that's where the stories like Andre Guadalla, um, you know, I think are really powerful that, you know, he already was at such a high level um, in his sport, but we were able to help challenge him to tap into a further capacity and potential. And, and we saw that performance improvement. And so whether it's you're a pro athlete or you're, you're a weekend warrior, or, you know, you're just trying to do whatever it is on, in your life to be at your best, like you have to have a healthy foundation of sleep every day. Now, what can you do to get there is a different story, right? Sure. And I think that um, there's three areas that I really like to emphasize with my athletes, which is one is the sleep duration. And I think a lot of people focus just on the duration, but then there's the second area of sleep quality. And then the third is the timing of their sleep. So for sleep duration, seven hours is the minimal amount that is recommended every night for healthy adults. And that's been put out by a consensus statement a couple of years ago by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Seven hours is minimum. Mm -hmm. So you may actually need eight hours or nine hours. I feel much better on nine hours than I on seven. And for some of our athletes who potentially are younger and healthy in their 20s, they may actually have that sleep debt where they would be um, uh, there. They would be but they would benefit from additional hours to reduce some of that accumulated sleep debt. So nine to 10 hours may not be too uh, far off from what they would need to reduce that debt further. And then there's the quality of rest, which we've talked about in terms of caffeine and alcohol, the sleep environment. Um, the wind down routine is something that I particularly would recommend. I think a lot of athletes often do not prioritize, even if it's 10 minutes of a wind down routine before they're going to go to sleep. And that can help transition from the craziness of the day and actually help prepare you to sleep. And so whether that's reading a real book, or I actually have a lot of my athletes do stretching or deep breathing exercises. So activate the parasympathetic system and dampen down their sympathetic system. Um, or even like I mentioned, showering an hour and a half before something to, to prime them so that they can actually transition. I think that's one of the biggest recommendations I would make. Um, and even if you start with five to 10 minutes and then build that, then I something that can be helpful, especially because the racing mind is such a common complaint for a lot of athletes. So even in advance of that wind down, we're having a time to process your thoughts, whether that's writing a to-do list, or I have a lot of athletes also uh, process their thoughts while they either foam roll or they do stretching with deep breathing exercises before their wind down routine. And then also the timing of their sleep. It's really difficult as that third bucket sometimes for us to stay on a regular bedtime and wake time. But one thing that I found helpful that I even do too is a bedtime reminder. Mm -hmm. And so it can go off, say 30 minutes before the time I want to start my wind down routine. So at least it's a trigger to recognize that you have say 30 minutes to wind and wrap things up for the day and then start your wind down routine. So you actually stay on target. So that's an easy thing to try and start to do for, for someone who hasn't really approached their sleep in a, in a, a systematic way. I, I think those are all great pieces of advice. And what's great is that they're not, it's not like one for, this issue, one for this issue, you know, you're not stacking a bunch of things that become onerous and you look at it and be like, oh, I can't do that. It's all, you, they're all kind of tied together. They're all doable. They're not, um, they're, they're not at all overwhelming. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's great. And the wind down routine, I think, I mean, that, that's something that many people, myself included, could stand to do a lot better, um, or to do it all. And I've found even just you know, breathing, like you said, breathing activities, breathing routines, box breathing, things like that. Um, uh, even using uh, like a, a Theragun or one of the percussion devices, which honestly, the first time, and I'm not, 
Theragun has nothing to do with this podcast. The, the first time that I used one of these things on the sleep setting, they've got a, you can walk through this sleep protocol before bed. I kind of thought it was going to keep me up. I was like, what? You're just going to be pounding me in the back and whatever. That's not going to be good. But it, it's that parasympathetic stimulation. And it really does just kind of serve to calm things down. So anything you can do to, to encourage that parasympathetic uh, activation, I think is great. Um, and you hit it in terms of it's all about small steps to yeah. in the right direction. So if you're someone who's getting six hours of sleep, I'm not necessarily saying suddenly jump to nine hours, but if you can go to six and a half this week and then get to seven next week and then start to build on there. And then if it's even just a five minute wind down routine and you're going to say, okay, this week I'm going to, um, you know, do deep breathing exercises for this week for five, 10 minutes, you know, that's all a step in the right direction for some, then we partner on objecting because that can help engage in that conversation and be able to track that a little bit more easily. But mm -hmm. I think it's as simple as even writing a sleep journal of your bedtime wake times. And you can do that just with a pen and paper. And I think that actually will give you more information when you actually see it day to day, rather than when you try to think back and recall what it looked like over a week. And then you just build on this over time. And I think sleep can also very much, um, it can look different for some athletes. Being in season can look very different sometimes than off season and recognizing that there's different times and in the year that it may be um, impacted differently or during this time in COVID sleep is very different for some individuals with other stressors and mm -hmm. a lot of uncertainty at home or schedules are not the same as it, it may be in three months time or six months time from now. Has anyone done research into the periodization of sleep? In terms of, well, are you in, asking about like polyphasic sleep? No more. Um, like in, in training plans, there's periodization that may, you know, build toward an event, um, have, have three weeks of increasing intensity and then a recovery week and they'll pair nutrition with that. Um, you know, looking at nutritional periodization, matching it to the training is, has become kind of an interesting new topic. Um, just in hearing you say that, I was like, I wonder if you could work to periodize to basically prescribe the sleep based on what training or off season looks like. It's a good question. I think less so than looking at acute interventions on sleep. Yeah. Uh, just because obviously very longer protocols are harder to execute. Sure. Um, but I, I've, I've seen some of the shorter protocols too. Like I mentioned, if you're increasing sleep duration from the weeks prior or the days prior to like an event in which you know you're going to have a potentially an early morning event in that scenario, be similar that you're going to have a sleep-deprived night and how that affects performance outcomes. Um, I've seen some of that research, but less so looking at long-term of multiple weeks or months yeah. as yeah. it's integrated, I think, as much with some of uh, the training protocols. But fascinating work maybe to be done in the future. There you go. When, when you have your research assistant in your next lab, you've got something to pass along to them. Yeah. Well, Sherry... Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and give us this advice that I can pass on to our patients. I think they'll, they'll love it. Um, tell us where listeners and, and you know, my patients that listen to this can find you both uh, professionally and social media and whatnot. Sure. The best way to find me on social media, Twitter, my handle is Sherry, C-H-E-R-I underscore M-A-H. And then same uh, handle on Instagram, Sherry underscore Ma. That would be the best way to reach me there. If there's any questions, you can shoot me an email. It's Sherry, C-H-E-R-I M-A-H at StanfordAlumni.org. Great. And are you seeing patients at the UCSF Performance Center or not currently? Not currently. Yeah. So day to day, I have not been there, but that's where my research is still based. Uh, but at this point, you know, I'm focusing a little bit on the clinical work, sure. um, given obviously the world scenario right now. But hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to continue to do more uh, studies in the lab. It's an exercise and biomechanics lab. So we just had put out a paper last year um, looking at how sleep affects biomechanics and largely it was an exploratory study, but suggesting that when we have multiple days of insufficient sleep, 
we're seeing that there's more variability in um, in athletes' movements, suggesting that not only when you're sleep restricted, but uh, that's going to affect your reaction time, but it also potentially can affect your coordination patterns. And whether or not that potentially has implication for injury is uh, to be determined. But that was sort of the the initial hypothesis that we don't really fully understand why injury risk is higher when athletes are sleep deprived, but yet um, we know that that's present. And so what is it about potentially biomechanics that might be affected in these states? Great. That sounds fascinating. I look forward to seeing that come out. Great. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I hope you sleep very well tonight. Thank you, Sherry. I hope you do too. Thank you. Thanks a lot for coming on the podium and we will look for your research in the future. Thanks. Thanks. This season of the podium is brought to you by Heads Up Health. Heads Up Health is a tool I use to look at all the data from my patients, whether they're pulling in sleep data, training data, blood work. I was recently asked on another podcast by the guest, if he took my phone from me, what app would I miss most? And Heads Up was the one that I said, hands down. So I'd like to introduce you all to Dave Korsunsky, the founder and CEO of Heads Up. Dave, tell us a little bit about Heads Up. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Well, I, I come from the engineering world where we have these tools readily available to help us use data to analyze problems. And I just didn't see those tools existing in healthcare in any meaningful way. So we've put together a dashboard that pulls in from all the sophisticated wearables. We're completely device agnostic. Aura, Apple Watch, Withings, BioStrap, Garmin, MyFitnessPal. We integrate the continuous glucose monitors, Libre, Dexcom. We can also pull in your lab results, and that's where we start to go a lot deeper than some of the other systems out there. And you can start to look at things like changes in testosterone levels, changes in inflammation markers, changes in hormone levels. So it really pulls everything onto one dashboard. The dashboard is available to individuals or to teams, just like you're using it. We're a very small mission-driven company, just providing powerful tools to use data to optimize health. Yeah, the integration of all those things is what's so important to individuals and doctors like me who, you know, I use it with my patients and use it to, to see how the different variables are ultimately impacting that patient's health. So if you want to learn more about using Heads Up Health as either a doctor or an individual, um, reach out to Dave. Uh, you can reach him at Dave at headsuphealth.com. Dave, thanks for supporting this season. Thanks, Kevin. The content of this podcast is meant for general informational and educational purposes only. All listeners should speak with their doctor or medical practitioner before implementing any change in their healthcare regimen. If you're currently a patient at Podium, then you have an established doctor-patient relationship with me, and I'm happy to discuss this with you. If you're not currently a patient at Podium, Nothing in this recording establishes a doctor-patient relationship between us, nor does it constitute the practice of medicine nor the dissemination of medical advice. Should you implement any information contained herein without consulting your own physician, you do so at your own risk. Thanks for listening to The Podium. To hear more, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Strava. Until next time, thanks for joining us.